It's in the air. It's an ill wind that bodes no good. Mad Dog McCree and his band of cutthroats riding into town. Folks here plumb scared to death. Town's deserted. Even a tumbleweed doesn't dare blow across the streets today. Because these hombres are mean, vicious, quick to the gun. I'm sure we got a sheriff. What we need's a gunslinger. You handle yourself, Pilgrim? You uh, spray a little lead in harm's way? That'd be tricky. But uh, we'd be forever beholden to you. We're, we're simple folk. Oh, but uh, the mayor's daughter, you lay your eyes on her, you see what I mean. She'd be worth taking a chance for. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to talk about American Laser Games, a software development and production company focused almost exclusively on Laserdisc full motion video shooting games in the 1990s. We're going to be talking about that topic in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, we do have just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 35. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide comments, suggestions, feedback, whatever the case might be. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel like having a discussion about classic games or technology or prior episodes or future episodes or pretty much anything you want to talk about, I am here. Feel free to shoot me a note. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to talk about the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, each of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about history. What is the historical context of the game or topic in general? And I say topic because this is one of those odd episodes where we're actually talking about a company instead of just games. So regardless, we always start by talking about history. And then we move into a pseudo review kind of section. And I say pseudo review because it's not like we talk about each game and quantitatively rank them or give them one out of 10 stars or something like that. But we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics. How does the game look? We talk about the sound and the music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, 40, maybe even longer ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict and assign each game to one of several categories to kind of stratify what we're talking about when we talk about all of these classic experiences. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It has barely aged at all, if at all, and it remains an absolutely amazing experience. It is a true certifiable classic. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are really good games. They're not quite at Pantheon level, but I still highly recommend that you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre in which it lives, absolutely play it. It is still a great experience. Might age just a little bit, but these are still really high quality games and I still highly encourage everybody to check them out. 
Beyond our golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the games that I can't really recommend to the general population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, but I cannot recommend it to the general population. These games have, generally speaking, aged just a little bit more poorly than some of the other titles that we talk about, or they might have had a couple of issues to begin with, so I can't really recommend them broadly. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these games. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the topic of the day, that being American Laser Games. Let's kick some butt. Welcome to Undercover. You gotta be tough to be on this team, partner. Welcome to Delta Force. American Laser Games was a software development and production company focused almost exclusively on Laserdisc full-motion video shooting games in the 1990s. Before we can talk about American Laser Games, though, we have to dive into the surprisingly interesting world of police simulators. Now, you might be thinking, what the heck do police simulators, as in actual simulation devices used by real police officers, have to do with a company most well-known for a string of live-action arcade shooting titles. Well, it turns out that before American Laser Games took the arcade world by storm with their first release, Mad Dog McCree, the company was focused on the development and sale of realistic police simulation rigs used to train officers across numerous law enforcement agencies. Our story begins in 1973 which is when the Los Angeles Police Department, or LAPD, decided to undertake an effort to create a firearms training simulator for its police force. As you might imagine, the act of policing is fraught with split-second, life-or-death decisions, and anything that can be done to reduce the degree of error within an officer's decision-making process was viewed as a net positive. For the LAPD, the focus was on providing officers with a simulation that would enable individuals to learn and practice when to fire on a suspect versus when a situation doesn't call for the use of deadly force. With a $250,000 grant from the federal government, the LAPD set out to create this early simulation device, which would consist of a number of video projectors, an array of cameras to capture an officer's inputs, a real gun filled with blanks, and a computer to pull all of the various inputs together and provide the officer and instructors with a detailed report on the individual's performance. Despite how complex the setup may sound, in practice, the technology behind the scenes and the types of scenarios able to be presented to officers was relatively simple, because early police simulators operated under the principle of shoot-no-shoot, shoot, which basically meant every single scenario allowed for a binary set of actions. Either an officer shot the suspect, or they didn't, 
and the individual's performance would be rated based on the expected result, as defined by senior law enforcement experts and, of course, the simulation designer. You can think of Shoot No Shoot as similar to many early console light gun games like Duck Hunt on the NES with its zapper add-on. Either you shoot the target or you don't, and the game plays on regardless, albeit with your score either positively or negatively impacted. This was, in essence, the same way early police simulators were designed. Now, here's where we need to get a little bit into a philosophical discussion about the use of simulators in police work. Putting aside anyone's specific feelings about the effectiveness of current police practices and potential biases, the simple fact is that police work often involves dealing with very stressful situations where lives are literally on the line. The job of a police simulator is to train officers to respond in the appropriate way, almost to the point of muscle memory, both related to the actual act of firing a weapon, all the way through to the psychological thought process that occurs when someone decides whether to shoot or not shoot a potentially dangerous individual. Because of this, the effectiveness of any simulator relies on its ability to mimic a real-world situation. The more real a simulation is, the better it will prepare police officers for responding to real-world situations while on the job. The issue here is that early police simulators were anything but realistic. For starters, with each scenario playing out as a binary shoot-no-shoot kind of situation, there was no room for variability or nuance in any of the situations officers would work their way through. Further, some simulators of the time didn't even have the ability to provide real-time feedback to officers, regardless of whether their selection was the right or wrong choice. I read a quote from John McCarthy, who some may recognize as a former mixed martial arts referee, that perfectly illustrates this issue. Back in the early 1980s, McCarthy was an officer in training at his local police academy, and he had an opportunity to use one of the early police simulators being used to train officers. The simulator he was using began playing a video clip of a scenario, and McCarthy decided that the suspect was a credible dangerous threat, so he decided to shoot the screen. But the video just kept playing, so McCarthy kept firing and reloading and firing again, eventually using 18 rounds of virtual ammunition, all the while the video in the simulator continued playing, seemingly oblivious to his actions. For those who are unaware, firing 18 rounds into a suspect is not normal police procedure, and McCarthy understandably failed this particular scenario as a result. Which begs the question, if a simulator provides no feedback to a user, is it really something that can even be called a simulator? Now, part of the issue was driven by a lack of technology. At the time, producing any sort of live-action recorded simulation with real video and actors was reliant on videotape, which is not a medium that typically allows for any degree of instantaneous feedback. In our Sewer Shark episode, we discussed this very thing, and some of the early efforts game developers had taken to try to get actual gameplay to be meaningful despite the purely linear videocassette format. There were some innovative ways companies got around this limitation, but the fact remained. Videocassettes are not a great medium for creating interactive content. Beyond the lack of feedback and interactivity in some early simulators, the realism of a given scene is driven almost entirely by the quality of the acting and overall production value of the scene being navigated. 
Early simulator scenarios were not exactly Hollywood productions, and oftentimes the actors in those scenes were not really capable of providing a realistic portrayal of a given scenario, resulting in an even further divide between the real situations officers would face on a regular basis and the simulated situations that were supposed to be teaching officers how to respond to potentially dangerous suspects. It's fairly obvious that the police shooting simulators in place around this time were not really adequate to use as training devices. The realism of each scenario just wasn't of a high enough quality to truly be useful, and the technology being used didn't allow for the direct interactivity that such a simulation would require. In the later 80s, though, a man named Robert Greeby noticed these issues and set out to create a simulation system that would address the deficiencies of current police simulators with the goal of creating a mechanism for police officers to truly experience realistic feeling situations where life and death decisions could be simulated and practiced in advance of any such situation being faced in real life. To do that, he founded a company named the Institute for Combat Arms Tactics, or ICAT, and began work on a brand new simulator to sell to law enforcement agencies, which he called the Apogee System. The core functionality of the Apogee Simulator was similar in many ways to the simulators that were currently in use by police academies around the world. Each simulator would be loaded with one of a number of scenarios, all of which would play live-action video and provide officers an opportunity to make the right or wrong decision, depending on the situation presented on the screen. But beyond that core concept and framework, the rest of the system would offer a number of improvements over existing simulators, with the biggest improvement being a change in storage medium from video cassettes to the disc-based LaserDisc format, leading to an improvement in video quality while at the same time providing a much more interactive experience for end users. LaserDisc as a technology for interactive experiences wasn't anything new, at least as far as the gaming market was concerned. We've talked about LaserDisc before, primarily related to the classic early arcade game Dragon's Lair, which used a LaserDisc player to provide players with what was effectively an interactive cartoon, where an individual's actions would affect how each scene would play out on the screen. This was accomplished through the LaserDisc's capability to provide near-instantaneous switching between tracks, rather than having to fast-forward or rewind to different scenes, as was required for any technology using video cassettes as its primary storage format. With the LaserDisc, game developers were able to provide a personalized, effectively stitched-together experience for gamers, where every action they took resulted in a different path through the story. From a technology perspective, All this involved was tying actions to individual scenes that a LaserDisc would skip to. To the player actually playing what was truly an interactive movie, it all looked like magic. Robert Greeby recognized that LaserDisc technology would be able to dramatically improve the simulation experience, so the Apogee system used it as the storage medium for its scenarios. What this meant is that scenarios would no longer be tied to purely binary shoot-no-shoot kinds of situations. Rather, any number of potential actions could be undertaken by an officer, and because the LaserDisc could automatically jump to any number of scenes, the video in the simulator could respond accordingly, creating a level of realism and interactivity that was previously unheard of. As an example, in a typical police simulator of the time, you may have a scenario where a suspect has his back turned to you and may, upon turning around, be holding a gun. In that scenario, the default answer is to shoot, because he's holding a deadly weapon. 
Alternately, the suspect may turn around and be empty-handed, in which case the correct response is to not shoot. This simple scenario is exactly what forms the basis of the shoot-no-shoot model of simulation. The Apogee system, though, was much more advanced. In this same scenario, let's say the suspect turns around and is holding a gun. The officer may decide to shoot the suspect in his head, which would result in an instant kill. Or, the officer may decide to shoot the suspect in the arm where his gun is being held, in which case the suspect might drop his gun and beg for mercy. Or, the officer could shoot the suspect in his other arm, which might cause him to run for and grab a nearby hostage. Or, the officer may shoot the suspect in his leg, which might cause him to fall to the ground, but then open fire on the officer. Or, well, you get the idea. Every single scenario would be able to branch based on the officer's actions. And at each step of the way, the officer's performance could be evaluated. And because each situation went well beyond a binary choice kind of scenario, officers were driven to improve their decision-making skills, as there was no guarantee that a single scenario would play out the same way twice. Not only were the individual scenarios varied, but the overall production quality was dramatically improved over existing simulators. Greeby hired Hollywood talent, though not necessarily big-name stars, worked closely with law enforcement strategic advisors, and utilized real film production techniques to create each scenario. Which, by the way, was not a simple process. Because each scenario could branch, and rebranch, and shift depending on a user's actions, iCat ended up recording hundreds of hours of video for what would eventually play out as a three-minute scene. These scenes would then be compiled into disc packs that would contain three to five unique scenarios, along with all potential branches, and would be sold to law enforcement agencies for around $2,000 apiece to go along with their $30,000 Apogee system. Compared to other simulators of the 80s, which could cost upwards of $600,000 just for the simulator alone, this new simulator was a steal. As you might imagine, Greeby and his company iCat had a hit on their hands, and the Apogee system ended up being sold to a number of law enforcement agencies, including big city police departments, the United States Navy and Air Force, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, with even more customers lined up for the system as word began to spread of its capabilities. Interestingly, while Greeby's customers were all law enforcement, he'd often get asked the question as to whether he'd consider selling a version of the Apogee system for more recreational home use. Early on, Greeby dismissed those requests outright, but eventually the demand became so great that he relented, explaining in 1989 that he was beginning to work on a scaled-down interactive video system using a similar structure to the full-fledged Apogee system, just for fun. This seemingly innocuous comment would eventually lead to an all-new business venture for Greeby, as shortly after, he would create an offshoot of his company to focus on the video game, and more specifically, arcade market. That company offshoot is what would eventually become American Laser Games. As a new company, American Laser Games had to figure out what to work on. They knew they had the technology and a compelling product, as evidenced by the adoption of the Apogee simulation system. But they couldn't just take a realistic police simulation and put it in arcades. They had to develop a new concept that would be more suitable for gamers. Now, I haven't mentioned it before, but iCat and subsequently American Laser Games was headquartered in New Mexico, a setting that Greeby believed could potentially serve as the backdrop to this new game his company was beginning to work on. 
Rather than film in a Hollywood soundstage, Grieby believed he'd be able to use the natural beauty and landmarks of the New Mexico countryside as the setting and sets for his new game. Thus began an effort that would eventually give birth to Mad Dog McCree, an Old West-style laserdisc-like gun shooter originally released in arcades in 1990. Developed using a relatively modest budget of $125,000, Mad Dog McCree would take inspiration from various classic Western films, with the player acting as the protagonist, the unnamed Stranger, who arrives in an Old West town to find it overrun by criminals. As you approach the town, you're approached by an old prospector who pleads for your assistance with dispatching the group of thugs, all led by a notorious villain named Mad Dog McCree. Obviously, you agree to help, which sets you off on an adventure that spans typical Western scenes such as saloons, abandoned mines, a barn, and a prison. Now, with a budget of only $125,000, you might expect that you wouldn't really be able to pull in Hollywood actors to play parts in the game. And, well, you'd be right. Nearly all of the actors in the game were simply local residents of New Mexico, with perhaps the most well-known actor in the game being Ben Zeller, the man who played the prospector. Zeller would go on to have roles in a number of American Laser Games' future titles and enjoy a fairly lengthy career in Hollywood, both playing bit parts in films as well as working in the art department for several big-budget films. Other than Zeller, however, the rest of the cast was made up of New Mexico locals, such as rancher Russ Dillon, who ended up playing several roles in the title, including the infamous Mad Dog McCree himself. Despite the relative obscurity of the game's actors, for arcade-goers of the time, Mad Dog McCree was a breath of fresh air. Sure, there had been light gun games before, and the whole light gun genre was fairly popular at the time. But there had never been a live-action laserdisc-driven arcade shooter before. Mad Dog McCree was the first of its kind, and it came with a price tag to match. Each play would cost players one dollar, a relative rarity in the arcade scene in the early 90s, where you could still play many games for just a quarter. Regardless, to say Mad Dog McCree was successful would be an understatement. Shortly after its release, it would shoot to the top of the arcade sales chart and stay there for several months in 1991, with many reviewers praising the arcade original and its use of innovative technology, coupled with fairly common cowboy tropes. Its success, and the proliferation of CD-ROM technology in the home console and computer markets, would eventually lead to it being ported to numerous platforms, including the Sega CD, Microsoft DOS computers, Philips CDI, and Panasonic 3DO, with a future version planned for the Super Nintendo's rumored CD add-on peripheral. In fact, back in 1991, American Laser Games signed a contract with Nintendo to develop games for that system. Of course, as we discussed in our Hotel Mario episode, that CD add-on never actually happened. But it's interesting that there were efforts early on to leverage the full-motion video American Laser Games technology for the never-released Super Nintendo CD. Beyond ports of the title, Mad Dog McCree's success led to American Laser Games developing a number of other similar Laserdisc-based titles for arcades and other systems, including a direct sequel to Mad Dog McCree, other Old West-styled games like The Last Bounty Hunter and Fast Draw Showdown, the sci-fi shooter Space Pirates, and, perhaps most interestingly, a series of games loosely based on their original Apogee system simulations for law enforcement, Crime Patrol, and Drug Wars. As American Laser Games worked on all of these and other titles, they continued to innovate. While each game would follow the same basic structure, each one was also unique in different ways. 
For example, in Who Shot Johnny Rock, you'd have to pay attention to clues obtained throughout your playthrough to determine which of four randomly chosen suspects was the main killer in the story. In The Last Bounty Hunter, you would be tasked with tracking down and taking down one of four outlaws, or actually all four over the course of the playthrough, the difference being that you could take them in dead or alive. And in Fast Draw Showdown, your focus shifted to a pure one-on-one duel kind of experience, where your aim and your speed was the key to winning the game. American Laser Games remained a prolific developer of full-motion video light gun titles throughout the early 90s, with 10 such games released in just a five-year period. And fans ate them up, myself included. I remember the feeling of walking into an arcade and seeing one of the oversized American Laser Games cabinets, complete with gigantic monitor and realistic-looking light gun. Oftentimes, you'd have to wait just to get a chance to play the game, because people would crowd around the machines just to watch the experience, similar in many ways to how crowds gathered to watch Dragon Slayer players a decade earlier. While I know many people don't particularly like or respect full-motion video games, the fact remains that back in the early 90s, there was nothing quite like the titles American Laser Games were putting out, They had cornered a unique niche in the market, and they were, for the most part, pretty darn popular. Similar to Mad Dog McCree, a number of American Laser Games' other titles would be ported to various CD-based systems over the years, though the translation to the home market was not met with acclaim across the board. In fact, a number of the home versions of the games were critically panned, with the most common complaint being the graphics and graininess of the video on some platforms and the control pad usage on other platforms that didn't have an alternative. As an example, pretty much any American Laser game title ported to the Sega CD was criticized for the overall lack of quality that the Sega CD was able to produce for full motion video sequences. Similarly, nearly any time a critic tried to play one of these games with a default console controller, they complained about the accuracy or difficulty of trying to aim appropriately at enemies appearing randomly on the screen. The good news is, many consoles of the time had alternate control schemes available, with some offering actual light guns for home use, while others allowed the use of a mouse to aid in aiming your gun around the screen. Both methods of play were infinitely better than using a control pad, and I can speak with some experience here. I've played a number of American Laser Games discography over the years, and any time I have to use a standard controller, I can almost guarantee I'm going to express a degree of frustration. It works okay enough, but it's not nearly as accurate as I would like. My preferred method of control, short of a full light gun with CRT television setup, is using a mouse, which I believe gives a degree of accuracy and movement that normal control pads can't possibly beat. Anyway, as the 90s moved on, a couple things began to happen. One, arcades started to become much less popular due to the power of home consoles, and two, the full motion video craze began to die down. Because of those two things, American Laser Games decided to pivot in 1995 and begin developing titles exclusively for the home market, actually starting a brand new product line under the label Her Interactive, with the focus of creating games marketed towards younger girls. The first titles developed under that product line were still full motion video titles, but instead of shooting bad guys in the Wild West, you'd control high school girl trying to find a date for the prom. It was certainly a bold shift given the more action-oriented games that American Laser Games had been known for, but it actually proved to be a fairly popular shift, so much so that by 1996, 
the only part of the American Laser Games business that remained profitable was, in fact, her interactive. This eventually led to her interactive being spun off as its own company, after which it purchased American Laser Games and its intellectual property outright. Despite the fact that the company's assets were purchased, there would be no more new American Laser Games titles released after that acquisition, though in the year 2000, the company Digital Leisure would purchase all of the rights to the American Laser Games catalog, allowing them to re-release various titles in both higher definition formats as well as on DVDs. This resulted in a small resurgence for the brand, but nothing like what the company experienced in its heyday. Interestingly, American Laser Games is still semi-relevant today, as some of their back catalog continues to be released or re-released on modern consoles. I don't know that their titles are huge sellers, but it does make me happy knowing there's still an audience out there for their games, even if it is a relatively small audience by today's standards. By the way, that spin-off company, Her Interactive... That company is still making games today and is probably best known for having created and published a long line of games based on the adventures of Nancy Drew. That's right, those Nancy Drew games that you've probably tried at some point, even if only in passing, are effectively the long-lost niece of Mad Dog McCree. While American Laser Games might not be a household name today, in its prime, it was a highly successful arcade game manufacturer with titles that people around the world would enjoy. Even further, the work its predecessor company, iCat, performed in support of police firearm simulations would serve as the inspiration for modern virtual reality-based police training devices. I know, many games based on full motion video often get a bad rap, but as I've said before, FMV done right can be a remarkably fun experience. With American Laser Games, you have a company that specialized in delivering interactive, worthwhile FMV experiences, and while the company may not be thought of with the same admiration and respect as many other early arcade and video game pioneers, that does not diminish the significance and importance of American Laser Games as a true pioneer of the gaming industry. Someone's receiving. This is Ursula Skye, commander of Colonial Star One. We are under attack. Repeat, under attack. My ship has been overrun by the Black Brigade. Captain Talon is in control of the Star Splitter Cannon. They're beaming colonists aboard the Black Dragon as hostages till the cannon crystals are found. Situation bleak. Deflector shield destroyed. Can't hold out much longer. Please respond. We're now going to dive deeper into American Laser Games discography, and this is going to be a little bit unique, because many of American Laser Games games have a very similar format and structure. There are some specific mechanics included in each, but the general framework for each, for the most part, remains the same. So I thought it'd be fun to do a bit of a cross-sectional look, so to speak, of American Laser Games catalog. Meaning, rather than look at a single title, we're going to look at three. The very first game the company made, the last, and which of their releases I consider the best. Along the way, we'll talk about how each experience provides a degree of uniqueness, and we'll figure out whether any of these Laserdisc FMV could only be created in the 90s experiences make it into our pantheon of classic gaming. So for everyone's awareness, American Laser Games discography spans 10 different titles, which are Mad Dog McCree 1 and 2, Crime Patrol and Drug Wars, Drug Wars being the sequel to Crime Patrol, The Last Bounty Hunter, 
Space Pirates, Who Shot Johnny Rock, Fast Draw Showdown, Shootout at Old Tucson, and Gallagher's Gallery. Before we start diving into their games, let's talk about what most, if not all, American Laser Games releases have in common. The American Laser Games titles we're going to look at are all shooting gallery, light gun kinds of experiences. Typically, full motion video live action sequences will play, leading to some sort of static screen where the action pauses and various enemies pop out fairly randomly at predetermined locations on the screen. Sometimes the action is much more movie-like, where rather than facing a shooting gallery, you play through a full video sequence and, as you move through the given scene, different enemies have to be defeated. In all cases, though, your goal is to shoot them before they shoot you. When an enemy pops up, you have a certain window where the game expects you to shoot them. If you fire at the right time and are aiming at an enemy, you'll beat them. If not, you'll, you'll usually lose a life. After progressing past a short introductory experience to get you used to playing the game, you'll be presented with a screen that allows you to pick which location or bad guy to go after. Based on your selection, the game will shift to that scene and gameplay will continue. In some games, you have a fair bit of control to go pretty much anywhere, though there are some titles that require a specific sequence for a couple of events, and failing to follow that sequence will result in what is effectively an auto-kill screen with unbeatable enemies attacking you via a brief video clip. Most of the time, the game will have a degree of randomization included in a particular story, requiring you to actually pay attention to the video clips that play during or after a given scene. None of the games are particularly taxing from a puzzle perspective, but there is a bit more engagement than simply shooting everything that moves. Eventually, you progress through the game, defeat all the bad guys, and save the day. Now, as you all know, most of these titles are full motion video games, and as such, the acting here can sometimes be over-the-top, silly, comical, or just horrible. At the end of the day, though, pretty much all of the acting is enjoyable in some way. So for my playthroughs, I did not have a light gun available, so I used a mouse for every game, which from my perspective is pretty much the best non-light gun interface for a shooting game. I've played these kind of games before using a controller, and, well, it's doable, but it's not the greatest. We're going to start by talking about the very first game that American Laser Games created, which was Mad Dog McCree, released in the arcades back in 1990. So Mad Dog McCree is an Old West-styled shooter. You play the unnamed stranger. You arrive into town to find it overrun by bandits led by the villain, Mad Dog McCree, and it is your job to clean up the streets. This is the game that put the company, at least from a gaming perspective, on the map and set the general framework that most of their releases would follow. You make your way through a series of scenes, shooting at full motion video bad guys across a variety of Old West locations like a saloon, a homestead, a bank, and a sheriff's office with a prison, just to name a few. You start the game with three lives and six bullets. You can reload your gun as many times as you want, and on some home releases, by the way, you can continue as much as you want. On others, like the Compact Disc Interactive or Philips CDI, you have no continues, but can save the game in between levels, allowing you to avoid having to replay a bunch of scenes you've already beaten. If and when you do die, you end up in a doctor-slash-undertaker's-office kind of setting, where the undertaker basically says you have to be more careful or you'll end up dead. These scenes are actually pretty amusing, and I enjoy the fact that they're randomized a bit so you don't always see the same death scene when you die. 
While most of the game is a shooting gallery kind of experience with some full motion video intermissions and action sequences in between, the game does mix things up a bit by also including duels against certain enemies, where you have to start with your gun holstered and at the appropriate time must draw and shoot before they shoot you. In the arcades, this was a tense experience because you would actually holster your light gun and have to quick draw it to be successful. At home using a mouse? Eh, a little less stressful and engaging. As you work your way through the game, you may receive clues from different characters that you need to use, or you might find yourself facing an unwinnable auto-kill kind of screen. As an example, you'll meet a character at some point that, if you clear a certain stage, will tell you from which direction you have to attack Mad Dog's hideout. It's a randomized kind of thing, and the character may either say, don't attack from the front, or don't attack from the rear. Assuming you follow those instructions, you'll progress through the game no issue. If you don't, though, you'll reach a screen where enemies simply shoot you without any way for you to fight back, losing a life in the process. I do appreciate the attempt at adding in some light interactivity and engagement beyond the simple act of shooting a ton of bad guys. I thought that was great in that it wasn't just purely a shooting gallery kind of experience. So before we talk about the specific aspects of the game, let's take a look at what the back of the box says, because even though many of these games were arcades or at least began in the arcades, they did come to the home and there might have been people out there looking for a game to buy that did not realize that these were arcade titles and they needed to look at the box to see what it was all about. So for Mad Dog McCree, the back of the box says real motion picture action. Mad Dog McCree is known worldwide as one of the highest rated arcade games and is the first interactive shooting game with real live motion picture action. Mad Dog and his men have kidnapped the town's mayor and his daughter. To save the town, you will be challenged by a saloon full of outlaws, a hair-raising bank robbery, gunfighters, a slew of Old West ambushes, and Mad Dog himself. Mad Dog McCree is the first of a series of exciting Mad Dog adventures. And then there are some screenshots on the back of the box, and it says high-quality live-action images from the PC CD-ROM game. So if I didn't know about Mad Dog McCree and I saw the box, I would have bought it immediately because you guys know I love full-motion video games. And an Old West full-motion video shooter, wow, you had me at Old West. It would have been awesome. I would have bought it immediately. I did buy it immediately, but of course I did in fact know about it from my arcade experiences. Anyway, let's start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. This is pure full motion video goodness with well-filmed, though not exactly Hollywood quality video. The visuals definitely represent the Old West feel successfully, and you'll absolutely feel like you're navigating a treacherous town overrun with bad guys that need to be brought to justice. That said, the overall quality of the graphics will depend greatly on which system or platform you're playing the game on. The arcade LaserDisc original, along with the more video-friendly home consoles like the Philips CDI with a digital video cartridge, or early 2000s computers with the digital leisure re-release of the game, all look great. Other platforms, like the Sega CD, oof, they are a bit rough. Now, I will say, I did have one critique. Even though the video quality is good, there are some scenes where the enemies really blend into the background, which can make for a bit of a frustrating experience if you don't have the individual enemy placements memorized. 
I'm not sure if this was an intentional decision to make the game a bit more difficult or not, but it is something I noticed. Now, I will say that the theming and colors of the outfits and scenes are very appropriate for the Old West. It's just that there isn't a whole lot of telegraphing where an enemy appears on certain screens, which can make it difficult to visually pick out where an enemy may be hiding. Future American laser games do a much better job of contrasting the background with the enemies. For a first effort, though, it still looked good. Though if you're trying to play this on the Sega CD, good luck trying to make out the enemies from the backgrounds in many of the scenes. The only reason I was able to play that one when I did is because I have pretty much the whole game memorized at this point since I've been playing it off and on for the last 30 years. Mad Dog McCree, for me, is just a guilty pleasure. Moving on to the sound and the music, there's minimal music throughout the different scenes, but what there is there is good. Uh, It's kind of reminiscent of Dragon's Lair from the perspective of there not being a singular set of audio tracks that play in the background while you play, but more of a short piece of music here and there kind of thing. For what it's worth, I still have the Mad Dog theme in my head, not just from playing it recently, but literally from childhood. The opening attract mode screen with Mad Dog on his horse as the Western-style horns play in the background, for me, that is 100% memorable. Now, as far as sound effects go, pretty much every sound comes from actual video with real Foley artists working on the sound effects, so it all sounds pretty darn accurate and realistic. No complaints from my perspective for the uh, sound effects. Moving on to the narrative and story, this is pretty much a straightforward old western kind of thing. You play a stranger, you mosey into town, you get asked to help dispatch a gang of villains and their leader, Mad Dog McCree, and you save the day. Along the way, you'll go through various western locales, you'll duel some outlaws, and you will save the mayor's daughter. Honestly, this worked for me. In the arcades, when I played this as a kid, I felt like a gunslinger, and my imagination filled in the story gaps that the game didn't make explicit. For a gallery shooting kind of game, I have no complaints, and even today, it feels like just the right amount of story for a 20-30 to minute guilty pleasure kind of experience. Moving on to the playability and controls, the controls here are pretty simple and straightforward. You aim, you shoot, and you reload. Occasionally, you need to keep your gun holstered and her prompted to draw, which happens during the duels that sometimes pop up during gameplay. Overall, with the mouse, absolutely no complaints. With a controller, your mileage is going to vary. Most systems with controller support do have a button or two dedicated to moving the cursor faster, since the default movement speed using a D-pad is way too slow to be truly effective in the random shooting gallery scenes. It's doable, and I have played the game this way, but I wouldn't say that it's particularly enjoyable. Playing the game with a light gun is by far the best way to play the game, but for that to work, you'd either need a CRT and console-specific light gun, or one of the new Sinden light guns that work with LCD and LED screens through some clever programming and visual image manipulation. I don't have one of those yet, but I definitely want one. So while the game controls fine, I do have a couple of minor complaints. For one, the timing and collision detection for certain encounters can feel a bit off at times. The very second bad guy that you fight in the introductory sequence to the game is a prime example. You see the bad guy pop up on the screen and you shoot because you know obviously that he's bad, but the game hasn't decided he's a threat yet, so it doesn't register the hit. Then he draws his gun, but you've missed your window to shoot him, so he kills you. That kind of thing doesn't happen too often throughout this particular game, but it does occasionally pop up. 
I do also have to call out one particular sequence at the corral, where there's an enemy hiding in a window that, for all intents and purposes, is invisible until you see the wisps of smoke rising from his already fired revolver, meaning you just died. You'll only make that mistake once, but I felt like that particular encounter was cheap, especially for somebody playing the game for the first time. Otherwise, though, I think the game is still a very playable, albeit short, experience. It's perfect for a rainy Saturday afternoon when you just want to have a bit of lightweight, no-commitment fun. So overall, how did the game feel to play? For the most part, the game felt as fun to play today as what I remember it being in the arcades, with the biggest difference being the control scheme, where a mouse isn't nearly as engaging as using a light gun. I know that that's on me for not having a light gun, so I'm not holding it against the game. But I would venture a guess that many people playing this game at home likely also don't have a light gun, so it is something to consider. The game is still fun using a mouse, don't get me wrong. It's just missing a bit of that crucial 90s arcade experience. I do have to admit, though, I have a lot of nostalgia for this game. But even taking that out, this is still a good time. And the acting? Actually, pretty okay. Some of the performances are a bit over the top, though still charming. It feels like everyone had at least some degree of acting experience, even if only at the local level. So what is our verdict on American Laser Games' first game, Mad Dog McCree? Well, I will say, I truly believe that Mad Dog McCree is a game that you all should experience. It's an important part of gaming history, and it's still fun to play today, especially if you just want to turn your brain off, shoot some bad guys, and not really worry about doing much more than moving a cursor around and clicking occasionally. As you might imagine, it is not the deepest experience, but it's not intended to be. For the type of game that it is, it hasn't really aged much at all, though it's not without its flaws. Which is why, for me, Mad Dog McCree is a solid golden oldie. I don't know that you have to drop what you're doing to go play the game if you haven't previously, but if you do have a chance, I would recommend you give it a go. Now that we've talked about their first game, let's talk about the very last game that American Laser Games released in the arcades, which was Shootout at Old Tucson, released in very limited supply in 1994. So Shootout at Old Tucson was the final light gun game that American Laser Games created, And similar to Mad Dog McCree, it had an old Western theme throughout. While it did have an arcade release, this came right at the point where the company was leaving the arcade business. And as a result, very few machines were actually created, though it is possible to play the game on a Panasonic 3DO emulator. Because, that's right, this game moved away from Laserdiscs to start utilizing lower-cost CD-ROMs, effectively putting a 3DO in an arcade machine and calling it a day. Shootout at Old Tucson is also the only game we'll be talking about, and the only arcade game American Laser Games released, that isn't actually full motion video. There are no story sequences, and there's no way to actually beat the game. Instead, this is a pure arcade shooting gallery experience, with digitized characters that pop up randomly in front of one of several different screens. You've got to shoot the bad guys, avoid shooting the good guys, and try to get as high of a score as possible. On each screen, you have to survive a certain amount of time or kill a certain amount of bad guys before you can continue. There are various power-ups that pop up along the way, like a stick of dynamite that can clear the screen, or an animal skull which, if hit, gives you unlimited ammo for a very short period of time. 
In between each level, you have a brief line of text that explains the situation you're about to be facing, but there's not much of any kind of story here. There's also no end of the game, literally no end of the game. Once you get through all of the levels, the game simply repeats the last few levels that you've played ad nauseum forever and ever. Now, interestingly with this one, you do have access to both a shotgun and a revolver with the shotgun having less ammo without reloading, but it also has a wider area of impact while the revolver has more bullets, but you have to be much more precise. From my perspective, the shotgun is where it's at. Because of the speed that you have to aim in some instances, the shotgun provides the best chance of success, even though you'll have to reload pretty much constantly, which actually isn't even all that bad. It's just a click of the right mouse button to reload. Unlike other American Laser Games titles, you don't die immediately if you're hit. You can be hit a few times, though if you lose all of your hit points, you have to continue restarting the whole level over. Levels aren't particularly long but they are much longer than other titles in American Laser Games' discography, and the speed of gameplay is dramatically faster, which means this is a decidedly more arcadey experience. At the end of each level, you're presented with a score sheet to tell you how well you did, how many enemies did you hit, how many civilians did you maim, and how accurate were you overall. You then get assigned a ranking, such as Deputy, Ranger, Sheriff, or Marshal, Though I honestly can't say which one is the top rank, since it seemed like the criteria for each rank changed for each level. So, what does the box say for shootout at Old Tucson? The back of the box says, Not just a new game, but a whole new game system. The first CD-ROM arcade game system in the industry. And you know what? I'm going to stop right there. Because for this title, there was such limited release that very little promotional material actually exists to talk about the game, and there was actually no box. Most of the materials out there talk about the technology. There is no box to reference since the only planned port of the game for the Panasonic 3DO was canceled. So the only thing we really have is arcade flyers, which is where that line that I started to read came from. But like I said, doesn't really talk about the game at all it talks more about the technology i'm not sure exactly how many versions of the game or how many cabinets of the game were manufactured but it is super rare i never saw it in the arcades back then Um, and i know that it's out there but i never actually saw the game in the wild so with no box to speak of and no real promotional materials to review we're going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by looking at the graphics. Like we talked about, unlike other American Laser Games titles, this one doesn't use full motion video, but instead digitizes actors and uses those digitized sprites in the various shooting gallery scenes that you encounter. From my perspective, this was a huge mistake. Say what you will about full motion video titles, but American Laser Games' other releases all felt pretty well put together, and because of the quality of the video, they don't really feel like they age too poorly from a visual perspective. This one, it looks like an old pixelated mess. I just disliked the general design here. It feels like it had very little charm, and I absolutely despised the animation speed, which lost all of the smoothness FMV brings and instead created a much more jerky sense of motion. I also really disliked the fact that in some scenes, the bad guys and good guys look literally 
exactly alike. And you don't know if you need to shoot or not shoot until oftentimes it's too late, given the speed of some of the enemies shooting you. I just felt like they could have done a better job here. This did not feel, it just didn't look good from my perspective. So moving on to the sound and the music, there was music that accompanied each individual scene and each track fit the setting pretty well. That said, the tracks weren't really memorable in any way. If you told a computer, generate an old West stagecoach robbery piece of music, it'd probably generate the music you would hear in this game. Which is to say, it hits the mark, but it doesn't really have any heart. Sound effects, by contrast, were fine. No real issues there. It's all just shooting death grunts and random people saying, Don't shoot me! Uh, Nothing to write home about, but really nothing spectacular on the sound front with this particular game. From a narrative and story perspective, there just isn't really a whole lot of story here, other than Old West people doing Old West things. You're effectively someone who's tasked with clearing out a gang of bandits, and you do that across a bunch of levels again and again. There's a bit of introductory text before each level that says something like, the bandits are holed up in the church, but but that's pretty much it. You know, I will say I'm kind of conflicted here. On one hand, it's an arcade shooting gallery, so it doesn't really need a story per se. On the other It's so different than American Laser Games' other titles that I feel shortchanged. I'll just say I was unimpressed in comparison to what I was expecting. Moving on to playability and controls, the controls here are pretty much similar to other American Laser Games titles. You move a cursor around the screen, you shoot enemies, and you reload as needed. Unlike some other titles, the act of reloading here is instantaneous and doesn't require you to move your targeting reticle off the screen. You simply click your right mouse button and your ammo is refilled, which is good too because the pace of combat here can be a bit crazy. So let's talk about that. In other American laser games, the action is much more slow paced, almost cinematic in some regards, which makes sense given their full motion video conventions. Shootout at Old Tucson is dramatically faster, which also means the combat is much more difficult. Now I will say, there is a fine line between fun difficulty and artificial challenge. This one veers a bit too far into artificial challenge territory. And let me give an example of what I mean. On one stage, there is a single spot on the screen where if an enemy pops up, they almost instantaneously shoot you. Okay, fine. Well, maybe just pay attention to that spot, you might say. The issue here is that enemy and civilian designs oftentimes are identical, with the only difference being a civilian will say, don't shoot me, while an enemy will simply shoot you. The audio for don't shoot me doesn't play until the shooting animation would occur for a typical enemy, which means you basically have to always be ready to shoot. And trust me, you will get an itchy trigger finger. This will lead to untold mistakes with shooting civilians, and in particular with this one stage and spot I was talking about, it's almost impossible to get right because the window for success is just too tight. Add in random bombs flying at you that you need to shoot as well, and you have a recipe for disaster. There are other pieces of different stages that have a similar issue, and overall, it just combines to become more frustrating than fun from a challenge perspective. Though I will say, the shotgun does help mitigate it a bit. I actually enjoyed using the shotgun with its wider spread. It made the game much more fun and playable than the revolver, which from my perspective required too much accuracy to be successful. 
Overall, a decidedly mediocre experience. So overall, how did it feel? I'm just going to get it out of the way right up front. This game is just not a good representative example of an American Laser Games title. It has none of the cheesy FMV charm of the other titles, since it is an FMV, and is instead basically a worse version of Lethal Enforcers, which was a similarly styled gallery shooter with digitized actors that is actually fun to play. I will admit that early on, I was having a little bit of fun with this title. Early levels had a fairly balanced difficulty, and I enjoyed mowing down enemies in rapid succession. Once you get to the mid to late game, though, the game becomes one of those designed to eat your quarters kind of experiences, and it is just not good enough to warrant continued play. So overall, my verdict on this one is this is just a game that should never have been made. If American Laser Games wanted to pivot out of the arcade business, why create a half-hearted title that contains none of the charm or mechanics that made your games successful in the first place? It's a good thing that this one had such a limited release because it would have tarnished the quirky charm and reputation of their original titles if it were more well-known. Bring this one out to the barn and put it out of its misery. This one should remain a footnote in gaming history. So while I do enjoy most of the American Laser Games titles, there's one that for me stands tall above the rest, and that is their second game, Who Shot Johnny Rock? And Who Shot Johnny Rock has a fairly typical structure to most games of this type. You start out with an FMV intro with some moderate danger to introduce you to the game, and then you proceed into a number of different stages that you tackle until eventually you make your way to the conclusion. I'm being intentionally vague, because what makes this game shine is how it takes the base formula and switches it up. So this game is a fairly typical 1920s, 1930s detective noir kind of experience, with the core focus being to determine who killed Johnny Rock, which might be one of four randomly chosen suspects. Each suspect corresponds to one of the four stages that you need to complete. When you complete a stage, you get a clue to Johnny Rock's safe, the contents of which tell you who killed Johnny. Each stage is completely unique, with a number of different settings and well-designed enemy locations. Some stages are continuous kinds of experiences, meaning you see all of the potential enemies on screen at once, and your job is to mow them down one by one in sequence. And there are other parts of stages that are more traditional shooting galleries, where enemies randomly pop up at different locations. Navigating to each level is done via a nicely designed world map, which I thought was awesome. The design was evocative of old-timey movies, and the fact that you weren't just shooting a location on a tiled screen added to the immersion of the experience. In between levels, you might get a call from your secretary to visit a specific location to do a minigame of sorts, like playing roulette. Also in between levels, you have the opportunity to spend some of your hard-earned money on extra ammo. In this game, there is no reload mechanic. You start with a certain amount of ammunition and must conserve it throughout the game. As you beat the different levels or complete certain side activities, you gain money. That money can also be spent on additional ammo like we talked about before, but is mainly used to act as your available lives. Every time you die, you lose a chunk of money, presumably to represent your doctor's fees. If your cash is totally depleted, you lose. By the way, each death scene here is unique, and unlike other titles, has different settings and characters that randomly get selected. It's a really nice touch from my perspective. 
After you beat all of the levels, you're presented with a room where you have to use the four clues that you've acquired to determine the combination to Johnny's safe. Once you get the combination, you open the safe and find a clue as to who shot Johnny. And if you interpret that clue correctly, you will go to the stage belonging to that suspect, clear out some more bad guys, and bring Johnny's killer to justice. If not, well, let's just say you may end up sleeping with the fishes. And finally, your character has a voice and a name. You don't just play a nameless stranger. You play a relatively nameless detective, but with a voice. And while the voice acting here is not going to win any awards, the inner monologue style of narration worked really well and reminded me of traditional detective noir films. To put it in gaming perspectives, imagine Tex Murphy style narration, albeit much less of it. Speaking of Tex Murphy, by the way, once you beat the game, the saxophone day theme from Under a Killing Moon plays. And this game came out before Under a Killing Moon. This blew my mind because I always loved that interlude music and I thought it had been created for Tex Murphy. It appears, however, that it was a generic musical piece that multiple games, or at least two, used. Now, I do want to note, just for everybody's awareness, the sound clips are not exact. It appears that there was some editing down for Under a Killing Moon, but they are undoubtedly from the same song. So, for Who Shot Johnny Rock, before we go in and talk about the more specific aspects of the game, what does the back of the box say? Because this one did get a boxed release at home. So, for Who Shot Johnny Rock, the back of the box says... It's the rollicking 30s and someone has killed popular singer Johnny Rock in this action-packed gangster whodunit. The player will need to navigate the back streets, gaming halls, funeral parlors, and the dirty sections of this city to get at the clues held by a number of shady characters and solve this murder mystery. Bad guys with machine guns provide a high level of challenge. And then there are some screenshots on the back of the box, as is usual. So, similar to Mad Dog McCree, I would have gotten this game immediately if I saw it because I love full motion video and the thought of playing through a 1930s detective gangster kind of story would have appealed to me. It still appeals to me even today. So let's go and talk about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. This is all video all the time and it looks good even today, but that statement doesn't do this one justice. This game has one of the smoothest sets of transitions for combat out of any of the games in American Laser Games catalog, and every single enemy is designed differently, meaning their costumes are distinct. Every scene is composed like a Hollywood, or well, just outside of Hollywood, gangster detective film, and I loved the way enemies were telegraphed for you to shoot. What I mean by that is that it was very clear where an enemy was and when you needed to shoot him or her. Unlike some other titles, the contrast between backgrounds and characters was perfect, and I legitimately thought the game looked great. Moving on to the sound and music, similar to some other titles, there just wasn't a set of separate musical tracks for the game, but instead there were brief pieces of music that played during various scenes. All of the music that was there meshed really well with the action on the screen, and everything sounded like it absolutely belonged in a noir detective kind of story. Sound effects were similarly good, as expected, since they were all from filmed content. Moving on to the narrative and story, 
You play a detective who one day is approached by Johnny Rock's girlfriend who wants you to find out which of four suspects killed Johnny. You take the case and set off to bring Johnny's killer to justice, shooting enough mobsters to fill a Martin Scorsese film, all the while trying to piece together the mystery of who shot Johnny Rock. In my opinion, the story was perfect for the game. It gave you a sense of purpose, and the fact that there were several different potential outcomes adds a degree of replayability, which, as you might assume, is fairly rare for full-motion video-based titles. I truly felt like a detective working my way through the criminal underbelly of an old-time city, and it really worked for me. It's not the most complex story. It's not going to have a ton of different plot points you need to remember, and it's not going to be a really in-depth kind of far-reaching epic kind of tale, but it just worked. It worked for what it was, and for an arcade kind of game, I really enjoyed it. Moving on to the playability and controls, the controls here pretty much par for the course when talking about these kinds of games. You move your cursor and you shoot. The biggest difference here is the fact that you don't need to reload, which I wasn't sure how to feel about it first. I was so used to reloading and part of me was kind of thinking, well, not reloading, that's that's just unrealistic. Why would they put that in the game? But in retrospect, I feel like it made the game much more engaging. I did read that one of the original arcade versions used a Tommy gun-styled controller versus a traditional handgun, which would explain why there's no reload, but I cannot confirm that with 100% certainty. Regardless, I felt like the no-reload mechanic really worked in the context of this story. And overall, the controls felt great. Every shot and movement felt perfectly integrated with the video. There were no random misses like what we saw in Mad Dog McCree. If I got shot or I hit a civilian, it was 100% my fault, which I can appreciate. Now, I will say the game probably felt a little bit too easy, even on harder difficulty levels. So just for reference for everybody's awareness, I played this on the Philips CDI, which lets you select a difficulty level for the experience. In the arcade, it wouldn't have a difficulty selection when it was originally released. But as far as the difficulty goes... I don't know that I would hold it against it. It made the whole game feel like a breezy, fun little adventure, accessible by pretty much anyone with a little bit of experience with the genre. I could definitely see myself throwing this one on when I have 30 minutes to kill, just to breeze through it quickly and have some fun. It plays and controls really well, dramatically better than Mad Dog McCree, even though this just released one year later. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? Honestly, this is just a lightweight, fun game to play. There is zero true commitment needed here. Think of it like popping open one of those small cans of Pringles potato chips. It's just the right amount to make you feel happy. You're not overly full, but you don't feel like you necessarily need more. It's just 100% satisfying. I legitimately loved playing this game. The FMV quality, the cheesy acting, oh yeah, this one has tons of cheesy FMV goodness. The smoothness of the gunplay, this is by far my favorite American Laser Games title. I especially liked how it did more than just present a bunch of random shooting galleries to beat. There's an actual story here. There are some simple puzzles, and you do in fact need to pay attention to the non-interactive video sequences. Add in the between-level activities and random events, and from my perspective, 
you have the definitive American Laser Games experience. So overall, what is our final verdict on who shot Johnny Rock? I'm going to say there are going to be some people that think I'm crazy for what I'm about to say. I know that some people have rated the game poorly because of the cheesy full motion video. I know some people think there couldn't possibly be a worthwhile experience here, but I'm here to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, this is an excellent light gun shooter experience. I can't think of any aspect of the game that I would change aside from maybe just a smidge more difficulty. Even then that's not entirely needed. The game feels good as is for me. Who shot Johnny rock belongs in our pantheon of classic gaming. Now I do want to say one caveat. I'm talking specifically about the experience I had playing the Philips CDI version of the title. I have heard that some other versions don't look quite as good or that some controls might be a bit wonky, but the experience I just had playing the game was 100% fun from start to finish. I honestly didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. If you have the opportunity, I highly suggest you give it a go. I'd really be curious what you all think. For me though, this undoubtedly deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. So we just looked at three of American Laser Games titles. Uh, What I did do, though, is I played all 10 in preparation for this podcast. Now, I'm not going to go into a deep dive about every single one, but I will give a very, very, very brief pseudo review, initial impressions, not even initial impressions, full impressions, since I played all of them to completion. So I'm just going to go real quick down the list just for completeness sake, because I can guarantee you we are not going to look at American Laser Games or any of their other catalog beyond this episode. Certainly not any of their light gun games, maybe a couple of their tangential games at some point, but we'll see about that. Anyway, we talked about three. Let's go through the others. Mad Dog McCree 2, pretty much the same as Mad Dog McCree. I did appreciate that there were a few different paths that you could take through the game. You get to pick which guide guides you through the game, and that basically changes the middle video sequences and middle shooting gallery sequences that you'll have to encounter. Otherwise, pretty much same kind of thing as Mad Dog McCree 1. Very, very similar style, very similar uh, comments, critiques, Pretty much the same game, just more video and some additional options for playing through it. Uh, Crime Patrol and Drug Wars, which were basically sequels for each other, where Crime Patrol was the first one and then Drug Wars was Crime Patrol 2. I really liked those two games. They didn't have a connected story. They were all individual episodes, so to speak, as you worked your way up through the difficulty and through the different ranks of the police force. But I enjoyed them. I thought that the shooting was well done. I thought the shooting galleries that they had integrated into the game was well done. And the acting was just super cheesy and super over the top. And I I enjoyed them. Uh, Not as much as Who Shot Johnny Rock, but I really enjoyed playing those games. I think you guys should give it a go. I don't know that they're Pantheon worthy, but they are something where if you're looking for some really cheesy cop kind of shooting games, go for it. They're, They're worth the time. The Last Bounty Hunter is kind of like what would happen if Mad Dog McCree were released several years later with some refinements. 
I enjoyed The Last Bounty Hunter a lot. It's probably my second favorite American Laser Games title right behind Who Shot Johnny Rock. And it's an old Western kind of thing. In that game, you're hunting down four different bandits. And the thing that makes that game really good from my perspective is, once again, the shooting mechanics are good. There's not a whole heck of a lot of situations where it's unfair, meaning you can't see the enemy. It's all telegraphed relatively well. And I enjoyed the fact that by the time you get to the individual bad guys, you can actually disarm them or you can shoot them in different locations and it will change the way the situation plays out, which is included to a degree in some of the other titles for American Laser Games. But Last Bounty Hunter, I thought they did a really nice job. Space Pirates is a sci-fi version of Mad Dog McCree, meaning it's all about fighting bad guys in space. This game was absolutely awful. You should never play this game. I, I Now, I don't recall if I ever played this in the arcades, so I don't have any nostalgia to fall back on. But what I will say is that I played three or four different versions of the game just to try to find one where the controls weren't just entirely broken throughout the entire experience. It was so unfair, the timing of when you needed to shoot and when you needed to actually attack the different enemies that would be attacking you. I could find no version that felt good. I tried the PC CD-ROM version. I tried the Digital Leisure DVD release. I tried the 3DO version. Nothing felt good. Space Pirates was just an entirely unfulfilling experience, and I spent hours playing that game. Think about that. A full-motion video game with probably 20 minutes worth of content. I spent hours playing, and you know why? Because the final boss of the game could not be hit on certain difficulties. It was so specific, the timing and the location that you had to shoot the final bad guy, that it was just ridiculous. And it was like different parts of the game for different versions you had different issues. So playing the digital leisure version of the game, I could not shoot the stupid ship at the end of the game at the right spot at the right time in order to progress to the bad guy fight, to the final fight. In the PC CD-ROM version, shooting the, the ship, no issue whatsoever. Shooting the bad guy, and not just the bad guy, but the, or I'm sorry, the final bad guy, but not just getting to him and getting past him, but there is one final shot that you have to do. And for whatever reason, playing on the hardest difficulty level, which is what I was playing on, I was playing on, on hard, I could not get the shot to work. I tried many, many, many times. I could not get the timing. I could not get the right shot. If you drop down the difficulty to easy, I got it within a few tries, but I was I played the whole game on hard. I kind of wanted to finish it on hard, and I tried it, and I tried it. Eventually, I did get it, but it was a entirely unfulfilling experience. I can't believe I spent that much time playing that particular game. It was just a very poorly designed experience. I focused a lot on the final the final boss, the final bad guy, but the whole game had fights like this, had situations where their encounters just. It was just really poorly well, poorly done. It was poorly designed. I did not like it at all. Moving on to Gallagher's Gallery. This is an oddity in gaming 
because rather than doing a bunch of shooting at bad guys in this one, they actually got Gallagher, the fairly famous comic who was most famous for slamming and smashing watermelons. And you get to shoot at a bunch of inanimate objects in this game. Uh, This is one where I have to question anybody's sanity for why the heck this was even created in the first place. I was able to play it. It was only released in the arcades, never ported anywhere. So to play this one, you need to play it on an Amiga emulator like WinUAE. And my experience getting that set up and actually being able to play it was questionable, to say the least. It took me a while to get things set up there. I did eventually get it set up. I did eventually play it. It was entirely not worth the effort that I put into getting it set up. This is another one where don't, don't even try. You shouldn't play it. And from my perspective, this was not American Laser Games at their finest. I did not enjoy it pretty much at all. Maybe a little bit, but honestly, not worth the effort that I put into actually getting it to run. And then finally, Fast Draw Showdown. And this one is a mixed bag because the home experience for Fast Draw Showdown is absolutely atrocious. It is so the concept behind Fast Draw Showdown is you have a bunch of quick draw fights that you have to go against a bunch of different bad guys. And the thought is you keep your gun holstered. And then when they say draw, you draw and you try to shoot them before they shoot you. At home, it is not a great experience because you can trick the system a little bit as far as reloading goes. I tried to play the digital leisure version of the title, and that just seemed downright broken. Literally broken. It would not work. I think it was an Italian version because I don't know if they even released an American version of Fast Draw Showdown on a PC CD-ROM, so that might have been something. But regardless, the game just seemed broken to me. Now, with that said... I have many fond memories of playing Fast Draw Showdown at Dave and Buster's when I was younger, because if you're playing it in the arcade and you can actually holster your gun and you actually have to fast draw or quick draw your gun out of the holster at the arcade machine in order to win, well, that that is engaging and ridiculously fun. And I spent a ton of money on that machine to get good enough to actually beat the final quick draw guy and get number one on the leaderboard at my local Dave and Buster's in Philadelphia and uh, probably way too much money spent doing that. But I was enamored with the game at the arcades. That is one of those arcade games where if they, if I ever found one, if I ever found an intact working fast raw showdown, I would buy it and just put it in my house somewhere. I loved that game in the arcade. The unfortunate thing is the home versions. And I even tried the Wii version which uh, the tracking just isn't good enough with, with the Wii motion controls. Like it's not fast enough. It would be way better if it was a pure light gun kind of thing versus the infrared tracking that the Wiimote uses. So for me, home experience for Fast Raw Showdown just is not all that great. Well, that was an experience. I know the kinds of games American Laser Games specialized in aren't necessarily for everyone but I truly do find them to be a guilty pleasure for the most part, except for the ones that just are not pleasurable at all. Generally speaking, though, they represent a very specific point in time where the gaming industry was experimenting and trying different things. And while the style of gameplay may not be in fashion today, that doesn't change the fact that the company and its games deserve to be remembered. Say, 
bet you're that famous bounty hunter the whole town's a buzzing about, huh? So you're gonna take on those four vicious outlaws? <laughs> well, you got guts. Gave up being a lawyer, became a killer. Figured I'd get into a more respectable line of work. I'm handsome Harry. Hey, look at me! I'm way too good looking for jail. They call me Nasty Dad. It's like robbing and killing with something to be ashamed of. <laughs> you know, I killed more than 50 bounty hunters just like you before I even knew it was against the law. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, there's El Loco. Crazy like a fox and twice as In this cantina, the tequila always comes with a little drop. Me! <laughs> Last and certainly least, there's the cactus kid. Bounty hunter. I got not deserved right here. With your name on it. How do you spell? <laughs> Stupid. That was our episode on American Laser Games. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, advice, or suggestions for future episodes. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel like you want to reach out, have a discussion, please send something my way. I would love to hear from all of you. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the original, The Legend of Zelda, for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond memories about that experience. At the same time, I recognize this podcast lives pretty much wherever most podcasts live. So wherever you're listening to it, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really about is making sure that I can create the best possible podcast for all of us. And the only way to do that is to get feedback. What's working? What isn't working? Are there any gaps that we need to address? So if you feel so inclined, I would love it if you left a review. Uh, if not, just want to let me know how we're doing. Feel free to shoot me a note separately. Yeah, I am legitimately just interested in making this the best possible podcast that I can. We are continuously growing. We are adding new listeners every single day. So I just want to make sure that this is the best possible podcast for all of us so that we can all continue to have a great time. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on The Legend of Zelda. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Oh well, tomorrow's another day, and I know something about survival. And now, I did too, but I had this strange feeling that we'd all meet again another day. <laughs> <laughs>